This event was recorded live at the 2016 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. My name is Jenny Brown. It's uh, lovely to welcome you all here and very lovely to welcome welcoming these two novelists, debut novelists, with their remarkable books. And before I forget, both of these books are eligible for the Edinburgh Book Festival's first book award. Have you got leaflets or you'll be <laughs> maybe handed them at the very end of the event? Um, and this is a wonderful award for all the debut novelists that have appeared at the book festival this year. And we'd love you to vote, either online or, or in the foyer, and put your votes in um, for any debut novels that you've particularly enjoyed. And I know you're going to enjoy hearing about these two. Um, let's welcome, well, without further ado, let's give a big round of applause <laughs> to Janet Ellis and Nora Gibb. Thank you. Let me just tell you a little tiny bit about them. Lorna Gibb was born in Bells Hill, North Lanarkshire. She worked as a dancer in her teens and came to Edinburgh for her PhD. Um, she's the author of biographies of Lady Hester Stanhope and also Dame Rebecca West. We're here to talk about her very first novel, A Ghost Story, which is inspired by Victorian interest in seances and spiritualist meetings. Um, one ghost, as we'll be hearing, appeared at seances in Europe and America more than any other, and that is the Katie King spirit, and we'll be hearing about her story. Janet Ellis is an actor who is probably best known to us uh, for her role in Blue Peter as a presenter, and she also appeared in Doctor Who as men. How many episodes <laughs> did you do of Doctor Who? Only four, oh. but that's enough for... I qualify for going to conventions. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Her debut novel is The Butcher's Hook, and it's set in Georgian London of 1763. And at age 19, Anne Jacob is awakened to the possibility of joy when she meets the butcher's boy, Fub, the apprentice. And she begins to imagine a life of passion with him. But she shows no fear or hesitation in getting what she wants, even if it means getting some blood on her hands. So um, we're going to start off with Lorna talking about her novel and hearing a reading from both of them. Lorna. Hi everybody, thanks for coming. Um, basically I got really interested in this spirit because the name kept cropping up and again and again and I found some documents from 1840 in America that spoke about Ohio and about this ghost called John King who was appearing in a little township in Ohio. So I wrote off to America and put various things on Facebook and this woman got in touch with me and she said I found these old gravestones near my farm and it turned out that the gravestones were the gravestones of the family that this ghost used to appear to and there was still the, the remains of the house they built to have the seances so I got really interested in the story and uh, over time, John King kind of stopped being a male ghost and became a female ghost because that was much more popular. People wanted to see kind of scantily clad women <laughs> floating around and, and they could kind of touch their breasts to see they were real and things like that. So that was really popular. You can't really do that with a male ghost and have any fun. So, so she became Katie King and... I kind of wanted to write about what it was like to be this ghost because she'd lived for an incredible period of time and I wanted to write it in first person. 
And I wanted to use a mixture of real sources about the ghost, like the documents I'd found, and like in London in Senate House, there's a real piece of paper that has her signature on it from a seance. But I also wanted to make up some sources and mix them in, so it became a really convincing story so that people really thought, actually, she might exist. Um, I'm going to read a little bit, um, two little bits, actually. Um, the first is from very early in the book, when uh, the Katie King spirit first starts to come to consciousness, and uh, she sees lots of things, and eventually the visions that she's seeing around her start to clear, and what she's actually seeing, although she won't realise this till later, is New Lanark, and she's seeing... Uh, do you, does everybody here know where New Lanark is? I'm assuming a lot of people here are Scottish, or at least... Yeah. New, yeah, we'll see. She's, <laughs> so she starts to see New Lanark and the mills of New Lanark and Robert Owen with his son, Robert Dale Owen, who he's taking round the factory. So this is what she's watching. Something of import lies there, a factory of stone and sweat. The noise inside is deafening, so loud that I feel as if I vibrate with it. And here, too, I know there will be dying. But there is a boy, no more than 11 or so, a lively-looking boy in expensive clothes, accompanied by a girl of about the same age, his father and another man. This last is an officious-looking companion who writes notes from time to time and wrinkles his nose at the smell of unwashed bodies, clears his throat of the cotton threads that catch in it. But the boy... He is different, so different. He looks around and his eyes are filled with tears. I am caught, stopped absolutely in my fast flickering pace by his empathy, the first that I have witnessed. He is not a poor child. His father is obviously important to this workplace and shares some of his son's concerns, though he is more businesslike, more resigned. But the boy is filled up with an emotion that touches me, new to awareness that I am, so that I too am overwhelmed and linger. There is misery in this hellishness of din and dust and fine threads that choke up human lungs, and I look for the dying which will make this image like all the others. I find it, but not before the boy does. A woman who is still young, not yet 20, is doubled over, haggard, and he moves towards her. His father calls him back. Robert, come away, leave the poor woman. And I watch his hesitation. An obedient child then, but one whose compassion will now make him defiant, though only because he knows that his father will not think less of him for it. The girl who is with them pulls at his sleeve to try to dissuade him too. Her name is Hyacinth, but he goes anyway, heedless towards the machine, the loom. The woman is crouched beneath it, making a sound like an animal. Her skin is grey, her breathing harsh and jagged. She is struggling to inhale, grasping at the air with her mouth, and the boy goes to her, determined now, and asks, Can I help you, please? Such a polite child all decorum to a woman who is in her last throes, and she reaches to him, one hand on her throat, the other stretching out for comfort, for rescue, the benediction of human touch. He does not flinch. 
I do not even see the shadow of a grimace on his open, tender face. He takes her hand and holds it steady, fingers weaved through hers, clasped a shared prayer that he clutches onto even after she is lifeless and gone. Poor soul, his father says, may God be with her. Mm. Later on, much, much later on, when Robert's grown... <coughs> can I read another wee bit? I'm all right. Yeah, I'm all right. Sorry, I don't, just, I don't have a clock, so I have no idea. Just stop me. Um, so later on, um, Robert's grown up, and Casey's a much more sophisticated spirit, having kind of gone through various passages which aren't relevant to this um, particular section. Um, but Robert Owen has, Robert Dale Owen, the son, has started turning up to this uh, seance in America, where he's a very prominent politician now. And he started turning up every single night because he's in love with this fake medium who dresses up as Katie King and pretends to be a ghost. The real spirit is watching as this Katie King, the fake Katie King, tries to talk to him and entertain him. And, and the spirit's speaking in first person, so that's the ghost. I would hold my breath if I could. She is so close to him now. Surely he can smell her scent, know that she is as real as he is. But even as I think this, the scent of hyacinth permeates the room, although the season for them is long, long past. I am creating an atmosphere with almost no effort at all, and I am astonished that it is so. Hyacinth, he speaks and is barely audible, afraid to break the spell that brings her to him. Aye, it is, sir. I'm bringing your Katie to see you. The voice comes not from her staged apparition, but from a corner of the room, as if there are indeed two spirits here, and the guests again crane their necks and turn towards it, moths to a candle flame. I marvel, because the voice has a gentle Scottish lilt without even a hint of the Lower East Side characteristics that so often fill this flat, this very room. This is not of my doing. I am discomfited and curious. Involuntarily, I think suddenly of hyacinth flowers, tiny, six-petal pointed stars gathered together on stalks that so often bend with the weight of their mass. And before his face, three, then four, then half a dozen tiny lavender colour flowers from a hyacinth bloom fall onto his breeches. Eliza reaches forward and places her hand on his cheeks. He lifts his hand and places it on top of hers, but at that she glides again to another chair. Even I am mesmerised by her artifice. Curious as to how Eliza has managed to conceal anything somewhere about herself when her dress seems to show there is nothing beneath it. I think that this part of the show is about to be over, that she will vanish again, back through the curtain, take her place in a narrow darkness that conceals her trickery. But it is not, and she does not. Instead, she moves back to him to Robert, who has his hands cut and filled with hyacinth flowers, and this time he stands. It is unexpected, this break from the assembled group. His hands fall to his sides at the nearness of her, and the precious petals float to the floor. I am between them. I look into her face and see only innocence, despite the guile I know she carries. I look into his 
and see that it is imbued with sentiment. I think I know what hurting is. And then it happens. I become her. For no more than a few seconds, but I do. I concentrate hard, wish with all my will, then I find I am touching his sleeve, its stiff fabric. The heaviness of a human body imprisons me, and I do not know how long it can be this way, how many seconds or minutes I can be within a living thing. Once more, I feel like a flying, fluttering thing, but unexpectedly, and despite the discomfort of the strangeness of the sensation, delightedly, I share the experience of the skin that I inhabit. And so I take my chance. Bending over, I feel the slight roughness of his parched lips against my own softly powdered ones. He pushes, just the tiniest pressure in return, the asking for something further, and I reciprocate in a kiss that has passion despite its fleetingness. Softest of mouths. We touch with the place where words are made. I am communicating silently and Eliza is nothing more than means. It is more than I thought it could be, yet it is the simplest, silliest thing. I am overwhelmed that these physical interactions happen every day to everyone, yet I have never been part of them. I have missed more than I knew. I am undone in his unravelling. Thank you very much indeed. Janet, would you like to Yes, I would. Thank you. Um, and I have to say, just before I start, that with these two beautiful redheads sitting next to me, I've got extreme hair envy. <laughs> so that's going to just get in the way tonight. Um, the Butcher's Hook is the story of a girl in Georgian London at a time when, of course, girls were not educated, their futures were mapped out for them by their family and circumstance. Anne comes from a well-to-do household at some point, just because they found it interesting. Her father let um, a family friend teach her a little, but that all ended rather abruptly. And she had a small brother who died in infancy to whom she was devoted. So at the time the book opens, she is in a place of extreme unhappiness and frustration. She is trapped inside this household. And I was fascinated by the idea that a girl then, a 19-year-old girl then, must have had the same passions and appetites as I know I did when I was that age, but she was restricted. She couldn't move freely. She couldn't explore the world. And I began to wonder what would happen if this girl suddenly got the means to go a little further and explore. And, of course, the trigger for that is falling in love, and she falls in love with entirely the wrong person, the butcher's boy. Um, so the book, I'll, I'll, the bit I'll read is, is from quite near the beginning, but we already know that her little brother has died, and in the interim her mother has had several pregnancies which have ended either in stillbirth or miscarriage. So her mother is present but absent, and she is frustrated and unhappy in the household. And after an excruciating dinner with her father, with the housekeeper Jane present, the butcher's boy comes to the door, she's never met him, but she decides for diversion, really, that she will begin to take an interest in household matters, because at least that would give her something to do. So against her better nature, really, she goes to the door to find out who is there and to see what might happen next. And this is what happens. At the door, leaning on the jam, stands the butcher's boy. At his feet, 
a basket, in his hands a joint of beef. I've never seen him before, but it is as if I recognise him. I stop in my tracks because otherwise I might run to him. He looks as if he would speak, but cannot remember how. We stare as intensely as if we're about to jump together from a great height. The world gives a great lurch, then resumes its customary spinning. Mistress Jacob, Jane announces. We both start, as if we're surprised to find her still there. Mistress Jacob. I look at his mouth as he says my name. There is a faint line of dark hair above it. I do not want to look away. Everything I have done today, till now, seems pointless. I have wasted hours not looking at him. He is taller than I am, but not so tall I must look up. I guess that he is older, but that may be because I'm suddenly childish and gauche. Which way should my feet go to keep me upright? Where should I put my hands? I clasp them together, then let them fall by my side. I'm sure they hang lower down than usual. His hair grows long about his ears, but is a little pushed back off his face, and in the centre of his forehead it comes to a point in a widow's peak. The brows are straight and dark, set a little in from the corner of his eyes, which makes the line of his nose strong and straight. Below it, a full mouth. He smiles. His face is the only answer to any question I ask. Do you choose now? He regards me with cool appraisal. He holds the meat closer to, he, to me. There are tracks of bright blood on the raw flesh and it smells of iron and earth. The size of what he holds is the width of my waist and I want his hands there. If he didn't wash away the blood, I'd not mind. Do you approve? His voice is deep. I imagine him saying my name. Then I think I would like to hear him whisper or shout it. Oh, let me see it, Fub. Jane comes up close behind me, her hands outstretched. But while he proffers the beef to her, he keeps his eyes on me. I have the curious sensation of being observed from all angles. I am aware of the lace at the bosom of my dress and the small buttons at the nape of my neck. He continues to stare and I feel the colour rise in my cheeks. I wonder if he likes what he sees. His gaze strips me and slices at the world. I fear that if I turn round, I will face a sheer drop behind me and I tense my feet in my shoes so I don't fall. At the very least, I cannot be sure that my dress still has a back to it. Jane is twisting the beef this way and that. She sniffs at it, then puts it on the counter and turns her attention to the basket. As she holds up each piece, she prods and pokes at them, and I'm reminded of living flesh, of the skin on soft arms or stout legs, of the smooth warmth of bellies and thighs. I shiver as if something touched me, as if his fingers stroked. Will you, says the boy at last, will you always come to the door now, do you think? Shall I teach you to examine what Jane will cook? 
He speaks softly. His word's innocent enough. But I know there is no mistaking what he means. Be here again. Let me look at you. Look at me. Thank you. Wonderful. Let, let's start off by talking about your narrators and narrative style. Janet, was it a, a decision from the beginning that you would tell it in the, that first person? And how did that voice of this extraordinary 19-year-old with her kind of skewed vision of the world, <laughs> how did that voice come to you? It, out of the blue, actually, is the honest answer to that. Um, as you can see, I've left it quite late to write my first novel. And in the interim, I've written stuff. I've written stuff that didn't really go anywhere because I had an idea. It was like collecting a kind of mood board or collage of strange scraps. And I wrote the beginning of the book, which has stayed pretty much as I wrote it initially, about this girl in this house feeling trapped. I wasn't quite sure when the period was. I knew it wasn't contemporary for me, but I, I wasn't quite sure how specific I was going to be about that. And I knew there'd been a birth and a death because when the novel opens, a little sister has been born who, who does survive, but Anne has no feelings for this child whatsoever. And then that feeling of being unlocked by what she thinks is love, but of course we all know it's just fancying someone like mad, <laughs> and how that stops making sense of your world and also makes sense of everything, about every, everything that you think and everything that you do. So once I got started with that, I then put it away for quite a long time. <laughs> didn't go back to it for a while but when I did I found it was like I trained as an actress and I worked as an actress and I I've done quite a lot of improvisation and that's what it reminded me of improvising on the page I wasn't sure where the story was going to go what was going to happen next I had a feeling it wasn't going to end well but I knew that that voice was like well actually it's like a seance it's almost like being taken over that I felt quite confident I knew her she's not me You'll be relieved if you've read the book to learn. But on the other hand, those elements of being that age, I could remember all too clearly. And that's what I wanted to get back to. Nevertheless, ne ne despite the fact that she's wearing different clothes and has to get into a horse and carriage rather than a car, I thought, I know how that feels. And the, the, so that then the, the plot of the novel came to you, having had a number of false starts before, by the sound of it. Um, As I wrote it, yeah. <laughs> Yes, yes, I hadn't planned it. Um, I knew that this was somebody who was going to take the law into her own hands simply because she didn't know what the law was. You know, her moral compass is skewed by misinformation and lack of information. So she's basically making it up as she goes along. But I wanted to stay true to what she thinks is right. It's not necessarily what we think is right, but everything that she does, she can excuse because it has an absolute justification. So taking it as far as I did with her getting rid of people who get in her way, I then thought, how does this end? And I wasn't sure for a long time. And then I suppose I was about five-eighths of the way through, and I saw the ending quite clearly. So I wrote it, and then I wrote the best rest of the book to it because I was quite sure by then what needed to happen. 
You went on a creative writing course mm. at some point, didn't you? And I that, did, yeah. And that, did that really yes, spur you? Yes, it on? did. Yeah. yeah, I did a, a course at Curtis Brown, who are agents, and it was I, I spotted it, you know, in the way that just the right thing occurs at the right time. It was only three months, one evening a week for two hours, so it fitted in with the other things I pretended I was doing. Mm. And it was absolutely ideal. There were 14 of us on the course, and for me, it unlocked what I think I thought was the magic secret of the nuts and bolts of the craft of writing. Because I know, like most people, I've got an imagination and I wanted to convey the things I was thinking. But I'm also a passionate reader and I know you can't just write everything you're thinking. But it, it took that, really, to really instruct me. So I started the course because you had to have um, 3,000 words to apply and I used this beginning that had nothing else to join onto. And over the course of it, I wrote one more chapter and then um, one of the agents there approached me and I felt terrible actually because I thought he's read this chapter he thinks there's he thinks there's a book basically so I went to see him and, and confessed that there wasn't yet and he <laughs> said well when there is let's get it ready you know so it was a complete act of faith on his part which I can't thank Gordon Wise enough for but also just gave me permission to carry on because obviously there's something quite childish in me that needed <laughs> needed that and also no more excuses you know I, I had everything in place to just write it was joyful. Um, the setting you make Georgian London so vivid in the 18th century uh, it just comes alive. Thank on the you. How why why that period? That period, initially I wondered whether it was going to be Tudor times and I found that that sort of closeted nature of the Tudor world and what I could imagine of the way it smelt and sounded. Then I thought, actually, I, what I really love about Georgian architecture, and we're surrounded by the best examples in the world here, is the fact that it's somehow quiet. You know, it was quite a quiet period, and this is set in England, obviously. It, it's a quiet period in England's history, George III is newly on the throne, and everybody was thrilled about that. There were no big wars happening. The, the religious element of it is important, too, because it was a time when people were beginning to experiment with Methodism, and they were not as powerfully religious as they had been before when that dictated how people lived their lives to such an extent it's very hard to get anything else in there. And I loved the look of it. I loved how I imagined it felt. And I loved the idea of this... This time, which to me gets a bit dominated, especially in London where I live, by the Victorians who came in afterwards and kind of stamped about being Victorian and, and making us celebrate Christmas in the way that we do, bury our dead how we do. You know, lots of things we live by are Victorian codes of conduct. And I thought, actually, there's something underneath that that I find really interesting. And the deeper I went into how the Georgians lived their lives, the more fascinating I was. I was absolutely spellbound by it. And, and it's fair to say, that it was a very bloody time <laughs> so anything I've written in here is in a patch on what actually <laughs> so did you did you have to do a lot of research well I kind of did it afterwards the important thing for me was was the character of Anne and her story but equally I did not want anyone to ever stub their toe on a fact I got wrong I wanted it to be fully researched in my head so that I knew exactly what all the rooms that they sat in looked like, but I didn't particularly want to put it on the page because when I read historical fiction, I know some people love that, but to me, I just want, I want the story and I want enough. Mm. I want the sketch, but I also want to know exactly in the author's mind that they're fully researched and, and informed. 
but I, I did get bogged down in a lot of it. And I say bogged down deliberately because when I was thinking I needed to find the answer to something, inevitably I didn't, but I found something else really good. <laughs> so I did, I get very distracted. I didn't, I wrote, he's a butcher's boy. And I thought, why did I put that? I don't know anything about <laughs> butchery now, let alone then. So I had to go and, and find out. But I did find amazing facts. But I tried to always put them into the mouths of a character very carelessly or leave them out if I wasn't sure how I could incorporate it. So if I've got that right, I'm absolutely thrilled. Lorna, let's now turn to the uh, narrative style of your book. Now, first of all, you got interested in this subject. Well, and, and you'd been a non-fiction. You'd done biography before. Yeah. Why did you decide to tackle this as um, kind of... Well, it's not really straight fiction, is it? No, it's in between. Um, I wanted to do... I actually wanted to write this novel quite a long time ago. Um, and I... I mean, I, I got into writing just the way that people do. I sent a proposal to an agent blind, and he said, I really like this, I'll try and sell it. And he did. So that was, that's the only reason I got into writing, and it was a biography. Um, and I thought, well, that was nice. And then I wrote the biography and it did all right. And I thought, well, I'll write a novel now. But then, meanwhile, someone had said, well, why don't you do another biography? Since that one did work well, so I did another biography. And then I thought, well, now I'll do the novel. And um, I, I sent the idea for the novel. Because I was a non-fiction writer, I didn't do the traditional submission for a novel, which is you submit the whole novel. Instead, I did what you do for a submission for a non-fiction book, which, for anybody here who writes, will know that you do... Um, a couple of chapters, you do a kind of big proposal document, which can be quite a lot of words, and you do a thing on target market and audience. So I actually did that for my novel <laughs> and sent it to my agent, who said, this is really interesting, but it's very weird. <laughs> and he said, but I know an editor who likes weird things. Why don't you have tea with him? So he introduced me to Max Porter at Granta. And Mike said, this is great. I really love this. I want to do this. And I said, I haven't actually written it like, like you did. And he said, well, he said, we can, he said, you've got a track record. We can do something. So they gave me a contract and I got to write a novel. Um, for me, I wanted to do, um, I mean, I like, I like reading straight novels and I enjoy them. And, but I wanted to do something else. I was also interested in the phenomena of belief and of faith and of what makes something real and what makes something unreal. And I wanted readers not just to have, I mean, there is, quite, there is a story, but I also wanted people to question what was real and what wasn't real while they were reading the story. So because of that, I used real things and made up things and tried to merge them really seamlessly. It is obviously a novel. The first person is a ghost. <laughs> um, but there were so many odd things that I thought, actually, I could put these all together and make it the story of this one ghost. So it was kind of like how it came about. Um, I think the fact I was a biographer was a bit coincidental, but that said, it was actually really helpful to have written biographies because it allowed me to get a contract for a novel. And also the kind of discipline of researching a biography was really helpful in writing the novel because it made me write every day. But but like Janet, I actually plotted, I plotted a lot of the narrative before I did the research. It was just the initial bit. And then I kept finding real things that changed my narrative <laughs> if I wanted to incorporate them, and that's how I did it. And the ending, I was about halfway through when I worked out how it was going to end. And, um, and then I wrote the last third after I'd written the ending to get me to the ending. So it was quite similar, Snap. actually. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was quite similar. 
you've got to explain how you research the story of a ghost. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, first of all, it was um, there's quite a lot of things around about ghosts, actually. You'd be amazed. Um, if you go to Senate House, they have quite a big collection of esoteric... Senate House is in part of the University of London, and they've got a big library. And they've got a lot of things to do with seances, to do with old spirit papers. There's lots of accounts by people who attended seances and wrote them up. And I was also very, very um, interested in how they created the illusion that these people were seeing. So these people were writing, well, this happened. And I thought, well, I wonder how they did that. So then I went to the Magic Circle. Um, I was lucky because my husband had contacts there and I got in touch with them. And instead of saying, go away, you're not a member, (laughs) they said, "Um, come in. You're very interesting. Come and talk to us. And I ended up making two really good friends at the Magic Circle who were absolutely fantastic, um, Ian Cable and Bob Loomis, who basically taught me lots of trickery and lots of illusions and um, how things were done. Oh, give us a flavour. Oh, <laughs> yeah. no, 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 no. Oh, I'm sworn to secrecy. I'm sorry. To, there's some things I could tell. That, that, for example, in um, really quite well-known ones, like levita- levitating tables, obviously there was something quite often attached to the medium's knee, which he would move to make the table rise. <laughs> Just simple things like that. But also much more complex ones. And um, I was quite interested in the idea because all of my magician friends, and I ended up having quite a big circle of magician friends, they're quite friendly once you get into the circle. They would kind of say, um, I would kind of say, well, they say, well, obviously there's no ghosts because that's how it's done. And I would say, well, just because you can do it like that, how do you know that there's not a ghost doing it anyway? I mean, just because you can replicate it doesn't really prove anything. You know, I mean, it doesn't really. So that was why I got interested in the idea of Katie. So sometimes in the story, mediums are doing things and you know they're doing them. And other times, Katie's doing them and everybody thinks it's a trick. <laughs> and then sometimes medium is playing a trick and everybody thinks it's real. So as I kind of like, as I kind of, I was interested in that playfulness between the two things. We've got uh, in the, uh, I'm just remembering his name, Adam Marcus. Yes. And he investigates Katie yeah. King. And he's very sceptical to begin with. But he moves to belief after five years of investigation. Does that anyway mirror your own experience? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Actually, I became more cynical as I went on because I learned, I learned more. Um, it wasn't really so much cynicism about the spirit world, but cynicism about the way that people use it. And um, I got quite... In, in exploring it, towards the end of the book, one of the things that Katie does is she rails against people who are using ghosts in nasty ways. Now, when I was growing up in Bell Cell, um there were a girl, a girl I went to school with, for example, who wasn't very well. She left school, went to work in Woolworths, as was then, and hadn't a very happy life. You know, she was quite bored with life. And lo and behold, she came back one day, we went out for some tea, and she said, oh, you know, I'm really excited. Um, I met this woman in the shop, and she's invited me to go along to Glasgow every week to the inner circle. She says, I've got talent. So this poor girl used to work to earn her money and take her money and pay it to this woman in the inner circle so she could be trained to use her mediumistic talents. And there was quite a lot of that. There was quite a lot of preying on on people. And and I saw it again and again. I I saw a, a girl I knew in London who had serious mental health issues who had actually been in hospital at one time. And she ended up being picked up by a medium and paying lots of money to to help inspire her gift. And I wanted to kind of 
talk a little bit about these in the novel too, but in a natural way. So actually the ghost gets very cross about this. <laughs> she doesn't like it because she thinks it's exploiting her name. If that, does that answer your mm. question? What, what was it about this Victorian era that saw this rise of interest in spiritualism, in attending seances? Well, actually... And, and, and yeah. how does that fit in with Christianity and religion? Yeah, um, I think... The book isn't just Victorian because it kind of yeah. starts pre-Victorian, which is when it was first popular and, and goes through the Victorian era. And she kind of continues to be popular today in Italy. So people still believe in Katie King in Italy at the moment. But um, I think there's a kind of... The Victorian time was a heyday for her because of the, the cult of death and mourning. So there was a lot of ritual, um, a lot of complex um, ways of mourning. Death was a... There, of course, was a lot more mortality, young mortality now there then than there is now. And um, there were a lot of ways of commemorating the dead. And also, at the same time as this, there was this rise in popular science and things that people couldn't understand. So things like electricity were, were quite mysterious. Photography was fairly new. So you had these things that people didn't quite understand and you had spiritualism and you could kind of put them together. And that's what happened. People put them together. Um, Meanwhile, organised religion, and this is quite, this becomes much more apparent in other countries than in Britain. Um, in Britain, there was some um, crossover. So, some churches um, accepted spiritualism. The Church of Scotland wasn't too bad on it actually for a time. Other churches, of course, condemned it and you know would would threaten to um, excommunicate people that practised it and so on. But in places like Italy, it was very, the demarcation was quite strong. So at, at one point, um, and this was actually a true thing, at a seance, someone read something from um, the Catholic Order of Service, and it was one of the most popular services in Italy, and it was shut down in a week because all the priests came and said, you cannot do that. They knew it was going on, but the minute you mixed Catholic litany with something that they believed was possibly the work of the devil then it had to be shut down so there was a kind of line and everybody quite um was quite careful about not crossing the line so it was like some tacit understanding but it's interesting that now spiritualism is a church in its own right of course with with you know many followers big congregations especially here in scotland in glasgow people like gordon smith have huge um congregations of believers um and in italy it's also a very big church um with lots of followers, but it's less popular. I think it's still quite popular in England, but but less so than it is here. So the the, con the congregations certainly that I looked at were a lot smaller um, than they are in Scotland, but it's still quite a, a big thing. Could you say a little bit about how her memory lives on um, in Italy? Yes, there's um, in Cesenatico, which is a, a small town between Rimini um, and Ravenna. Um, on the Adriatic coast of Italy, there's a bookshop called the Katie King Bookshop, which sells um, esoterica and things to do with spiritualism, things to do with religion generally, but predominantly spiritual religion, and it's named after her. And um, it's a very popular shop. I went there, I met the owner who became a friend. She's lovely. Um, the final scenes of the book are all set in Cesenatico because, of course, the, the guy researching the book gets an attachment to Cesenatico because he's researching the ghost and she's still accepted there. But um, even in late 20th century, you know, she could... An appearance of Casey King with the Italian media Fulvio Rendell filled a stadium in Rome, so they came, <laughs> came to see her. Wow. There's a TV medium, though, <laughs> so... <laughs> 
<laughs> Amazing. Janet, um, I wanted to ask you about influences, as you write, wrote. I mean, because a couple of uh, reviewers have mentioned both Henry Fielding's Tom Jones and Lawrence Stern's Tristram Shandy uh, while looking at your book. Were they, were they books that you'd read and been thinking about? They were books I read years ago. I think I'm much more influenced by people like Rose Tremaine and Hilary Mantel, if I'm honest. But I don't think you can be uninfluenced by anything you're reading, can you? Mm. And equally, I've read and done plays from the 18th century, which probably helped mm. when it came to recreating the dialogue, because although I didn't want it to sound too clunky and authentic, I also didn't want it to sound utterly contemporary. So I suppose all those kind of things just lodge somewhere. They're the building bricks of everything we are and that we write. But I didn't specifically go to those sort of references mm. when I was writing. In fact, I, I don't know about you, but when I was writing, I found it very hard to read anything else at all because I either found books so dauntingly good that I thought, what am I doing? Or I started thinking, this is not even great and I'm writing. <laughs> so what's... I don't know, that's probably just me. But I, I definitely found that I, I was a bit... Um, I never got writer's block, but I got reader's block quite a lot. I couldn't really concentrate on anything else. But I did read a lot of things like housekeeping journals. I love ephemera. I love the nuts and bolts of people's actual lives. And there was an amazing woman in Norfolk who was the wife of a ship's chandler who just kept a diary, which was basically household doings. But it's so vivid to me, and it tells much more about her life. Because after all, without being too pedantic and stiff about it, most of history is written about the big stuff. Yeah. And, and I find the little stuff much more interesting and, because and that's how, us. And how easy was it to f uncover the women's lives and the lives of somebody like Anne? Really hard. Yeah. Because of that. Because they just didn't have much of a voice and they weren't encouraged to put their feelings down. So it's, it's any diary I could possibly find I really mm. loved. Spent quite a, the, the library at the V&A is it was a good source. Mm. And then when I, when I decided to make him a butcher's boy, I wrote to the Worshipful Company of Butchers, <laughs> and I explained <laughs> that there was quite a few things I needed to know. And they said, oh, what sort of things? So I wrote a list. You know, simple things like, what did they wrap meat in? And yeah. were there any particular cuts there? Well, you know, the real just sort of um, uh, trivia, really. And they wrote back and said, oh, we don't know, but you're welcome to come and look in our library. <laughs> And see if you can find out. And I have to say, and I've said this to them, it's the worst curated library I've ever been in. Yeah. And it had a lot of stuff in there I didn't need. It had a lot of stuff about other Chandlers as well that I certainly wasn't going to get involved with. But I did find amazing things, which I didn't know before. It might be common knowledge. But, for example, to get meat to Smithfield, which came into London pretty much every day, a lot of it had come from up here, and it had been walked the length of the British Isles. Often it had swum from the outer islands. So then it arrived in London, skinny, and then was fattened up again to be killed and, and sold on. I thought that's, that's an extraordinary image, that every single day in parts of London... Hordes, you know, herds of, of tiny, thin cows would be walking through the town with all the mess and everything else that concerns. And I just found those sort of things unshakable, those, those images. But you're right, there's hardly anything extant which is the female voice. And how often did it occur to you when you were writing your debut novel that how difficult you're making life for yourself <laughs> by, by make, doing it historical rather than contemporary it's novel. It's so blissful, isn't it, ignorance? You yeah. know? <laughs> so, oh, here I am writing. And, and equally, and I, I think this is to do with writing a book later and also with 
with a significant distance between things like Blue Peter, which I absolutely, it was the happiest time of my life. I loved it. But I didn't know quite what people would expect from a Blue Peter presenter in terms of a book. But I don't, <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's, it's not this. And along the way, because I've always enjoyed writing, you know, and I write as a journalist now, but uh, along the way people have said to me, oh, why don't you write a book? And like, oh, I'd love to write a book. And they go, yeah, why don't you do a kind of thinly disguised account of a, of a children's television presenter <laughs> turned detective? And I think, no, because I don't want to read that book. So, so a lot of it was about writing the book I absolutely wanted wanted to write for me and I know that's a, a twee thing to say but I was not held back by anybody looking over my shoulder literally or figuratively and going steady on with the old murders there so yeah it was it was very liberating but actually to manage expectations of anybody reading it didn't your agent submit it under a pseudonym <laughs> he did yeah he did yeah, yeah when, when it was when it was finished uh, he said you know let's, let's, let's send this out because uh, I'm not being doubted about this you know, I'm, not, I'm not super mega famous I do know that but on the other hand and a lot of the things I've done along the way have a kind of OES quality to them, which is very nice. You know, they've been Janet Ellis, Blue Peter, oh yes, you know, and, it's that, and that, that thing is lovely. And the things that I've been associated with, and you know, now that I've got, you know, one of my kids is, is famous for singing, so there's that, Sophia Inspector. Oh, yes. And, and I think he just thought, you know, that that might just make people expect maybe the thinly disguised account of being a child. And also, realistically, gave him two cracks at it. But, you know, I, when he first said, let's send it out under another name, I was actually mortified because I thought, I've, I've actually finished a book. I haven't done that before. And I'd quite like everyone to know that it was me that finished it. But, but after a while, I, I thought, actually... For a start, it's really quite exciting to think that my book is going out sort of alone in the world. And um, I never met either of my grandmothers. They died when both my mother and father were children. And so I gave my, one of my grandmother's names, Jo Winter, because I thought that sound... I'm not quite sure who she is. You know, she could be good at anything. You know, I don't know what she looks like. But, but I like the name, and it's quite strong. And there's a slight ambiguity about even what sex she might be, he might be. And... Uh, now, looking back, of course, you know, it was Gordon's idea, but I'm really tempted to take the credit for it because I love it so much that just for a little while, that book, my book, existed without anything else around it. And it was really heady when people started to say, hmm, yeah, Joe Winter, let's find out more. So, yeah, I'm glad it's got my name on the cover. <laughs> That's it. I wouldn't, I wouldn't go any further with that. But, but no, it was really special that yeah. just for a little while. It's a good name, though, Joe Winter. I don't think you should lose sight of that. It's going to come back. Lord, are you tempted to write um, anything contemporary? Having, having delved into history, especially with this one. I don't know, actually. Um, I've got, I'm doing another non-fiction book for Grantcheck because I've got a commission, so I'm doing that. Um, after that, I've got uh, an option to do another novel, so I'll do that. Um, I kind of have an idea for a novel, but it's not contemporary either so <laughs> so at the immediate in the immediate um future i haven't got any plans to do something contemporary but i wouldn't rule it out actually i might <laughs> watch the space now we've got some time for questions um can we have the house lights up and there's a roving microphone and um oh and a question straight in the front row okay. <laughs> such a beautiful place this isn't it's it it's gorgeous yeah. I know it's just it's great. quite exciting being in a tent yeah. 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 It's quite thanks very much for coming to share your debut novels with us it's been really very interesting oh, thank, um, thank you I, I did go to a writing class but dropped out of it because um, that other pressures of life but um, the, the class I went to the, the 
tutor was very much um, encouraged you to actually physically write as opposed to, to type or whatever because he felt that the creative process and the, the creative wow. juices were more prominent if you were actually writing and that may well have been his view but I'm interested in your thoughts on that and secondly if if and obviously this will have whetted your appetite to maybe write a second novel we've alluded to that what challenges do you think you'd face as writers approaching your second novel um, because it's it's a different ball game isn't it when you go into your second novel when you've had a successful first novel <laughs> I, 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 I would, I, and there are people in this room who know this, that if I ever handwrite anything, they would really like not to ever have to try to read it. So, um, no, I, I really tried. My, my excuse for this is that my dad was in the army when I was little. We moved around a lot. This has is, this is really worked out, this. So every school I went to obviously needed a slightly different style of writing. But actually, it's rubbish. My handwriting, even when I concentrate, it's really bad. <laughs> and actually, interestingly enough, along the way, during my many not writings, I did try and write longhand because I thought, for me, that might be a kind of editing process, that I would write something and then immediately see as I tried to transcribe it where I should leave things out. And I just couldn't even read my own writing, so that, that <laughs> failed completely. Um, well, I'm, I'm writing uh, another novel, and it's, it's set in the 1970s, which I think is not history, but any younger persons in the room might <laughs> think is. I, I just think I'm not quite ready to give my people mobile phones and, and quick, you know, Uber. I don't want them to have quick escape from anything. I, I quite like keeping them restricted. <laughs> Yes, I, there was a huge challenge writing my first one, so it's familiar ground. I think the first few days when I, when I sat down to write the, the second one, I looked at the screen and I thought, what did I do? Obviously I did it, it's here, but, uh, but then actually there's something about the way that writing just feels, it's always felt natural to me actually, even, even in a vain way when nobody else read it. And I think the leap I had to make was not so much writing the book, because I have a story I want to tell. I'm not quite sure how it ends again, but I know who these people are. But the real challenge was in, in conquering, <laughs> ultimately knowing what an audacious act writing is. You know, it, it, you write something down, and then you ask people <laughs> to read it. I mean, it's just, it is an extraordinary exchange. But I know as a reader how precious that exchange is, and that when somebody does speak to you on the page, it's a voice like nothing else. So, you know, to be part of it is enormously exciting mm. and thrilling. So, yeah, my editors in room mostly, I'm really ahead with the second book. <laughs> I'm, nearly, I'm nearly there. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm about two-thirds of the way through. But, but I think I'm enjoying it in the same way that I did before. I like, I like just having written a lot. And I also like going back into things and, and actually getting rid of stuff I find enormously satisfying. I can, I can see much more quickly now where things shouldn't be as well as where they should. But you should go and do another one. I, I think they're great. But I, I've got scripts yeah. yeah, well, yeah, just the longhand thing. I, oh, I, oh, no, actually, yeah, do you, you yeah. teach creative writing. So, I do, actually, part-time, yeah, yeah, I and do. do. Do you recommend that to students? I definitely wouldn't, no. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, really, really no. I, I like computers and screens. They make me organised. Otherwise, I have a feeling I would write lots of really flowery, very <laughs> sentimental, kind of like, almost like a teenage diary or something. I can't. I think I need some kind of something between me and the page to 
you know, kind of rein me in a bit, just <laughs> keep me under control. No, I wouldn't recommend that at all. And indeed, I let my students use computers in class to write. If we're doing a writing exercise, I don't make them write by hand. But there's also the thing that I have to read it, you see. And I probably have lots of people like Janet in my class. So if they're doing it on a computer, it's a lot easier for me to read than <laughs> if they're <laughs> writing in longhand. I think it's a very personal thing. Um, Tom Bullough, who's a, a grantor writer and a really wonderful writer, I was doing an event with him um, just a couple of weeks ago, and he actually said that he does write longhand, and I was quite amazed because it, you know, it's a lot of book to write longhand. I was like, oh, writer's cramp, and but no, he writes. So I think it's a very personal thing. I certainly would never say to somebody else, "You must mm. do this." Anybody else ask like to ask anything? Yep. Thank you. Just here. <laughs> What uh, nut or bolt would you pick up? And, and Lorna, you, you never you teach creative writing. So, for example, what what kinds? Of, I, I really have no idea what kinds of things people learn at writing. Well, I teach school. I teach at university, so it's um and and basically for me, a lot of the the kids that I get, especially I mean I've I've got a lot of undergraduates, but I also have a lot of PhD students. I'll talk about them slightly differently. So with my undergraduate students, a lot of it is getting them confident. It's about making them feel confident that they have something interesting to say, giving them space to write, reading their stuff, doing the work almost like an editor would do. Um, teaching things like submission, how do you submit a piece of work? We also have quite a lot of industry links because we're, I work, I'm very lucky, my department is practice-based, so we're all writers. It's not a, an academic department, really. We're all playwrights or writers of some kind. So we have um, events where we bring agents and our students get to pitch their work to agents and we help them do that. So it's also about, and because it's, um, Middlesex University isn't a particularly posh university. One of the real ethos of it is that we're giving kids a chance whose parents aren't, you know, they don't have, oh, mum's got a friend who works at Penguin or Faber or Granta, and we're giving them a chance to, to get their work, to get their work heard, to make it presentable, because sometimes it's, it's about presentation as well. Um, for writing non-fiction, of course, we teach research skills. You know, where do you find archives? How do you incorporate archives? How do you actually build a narrative from a biography? It's not just writing somebody's life. You actually have to create a narrative around that. So how do you do that? Things like that. And then um, with PhD students, it's very different. They're quite often people who have published something. They've maybe published a non-fiction book, but they want to do a novel, and they want to do it in quite a safe environment or they published a novel and they want to do a non-fiction mm -hmm. book. So we get a lot of that. Um, and also um, PhD by Public Works, which I have a lot of students who do, which are people who are successful writers, quite often, quite often more successful than I am. Um, but what they want is for their work to be seen in an academic way. So I would teach them how to frame their work and how to see it as part of a canon. And um, it helps them get teaching jobs because writing doesn't pay that well. So it gets them some work to supplement their income. So from, from a student point of view, um, there were 14 of us on the course, um, eight women and six men. Huge range of ages. The youngest was 22 and the oldest was 74. Great range of professions. In fact, one of them coincidentally 
was somebody who had worked on Blue Peter after me and then became a commissioner <laughs> on Children <laughs> BBC, a psychotherapist, some journalists, lawyers, a real scattering of people, but all with this common thing that they wanted to write a book and hopefully have it published. And I suppose it's the difference for me between just getting a whole load of flowers and sticking them in a vase and actually arranging them. You know, it's, it's a question of really making sure that each word has its place. I mean, I have a particular obsession with finding the right word, which is not meant to say, to say that other writers don't, but I just, I enjoy language a lot. And I know there's a big fat dictionary with lots of words in it. Each one is just right. And I know that when I'm reading through a story of somebody else's, I'm not thinking that's just the right word. But for me, it's, I get a lot of pleasure from that. But I don't want to get derailed writing because I've just, you know, majored so much on finding the accurate phrase. But I, I also wanted to be able to let the story through, but keep my voice. And I didn't know how to do that at all. And the most useful thing was workshopping other people's work <laughs> because I did we did that twice everybody got a couple of goes at that and I did find you know it's amazing everybody has an inner editor and you'll read something and you'll think but it'd be much better if it would be better if she said that rather than you tell me she said that and although there are lots of rules about writing about not using adverbs and show not tell and all those kind of things it's more that Somehow you can see really clearly when someone's got a brilliant idea and a great story and a perfect character and all that stuff's getting in the way of it. So I just found for me, it was a question of being able to see quite clearly through working with other people and with what they decided to write that I could suddenly see a much clearer way for my own particular vase of flowers. But it, yeah, hugely enjoyable and also really nervous making. We, we took away... Um, work each week to to read and the first time people took away my work I apart from taking my driving test I think that's the only other time I was that nervous I just mm -hmm. I was unbearably nervous about it because it did feel that is the audacity you know I just feel if they don't like it I can't do this anymore there's other stuff I can do I I'm not gonna wait around forever and ever to write a book that doesn't work but I want it to work so much so we're well, luckily we're all still in touch <laughs> which is very nice a very supportive group I was very lucky I think work can I just come in and say that I think that's absolutely true about workshopping and um, when I was really young like in my late teens I used to do a workshop at Glasgow University with um, Edwin Morgan and Stephen Mulrine and um Honestly, without two years of like just going every night and sitting in that night class, and I was like, you know, 17 and bringing my mm. stories and getting, I don't know if I'd have had the confidence to keep it up later because it was just that, like, these people were brilliant, brilliant mm. writers, far better than I'll ever be. And they were saying, actually, your stuff's really good. Why don't you do something with that? And encouraging me. And, and that's kind of like, yeah, and that's what I kind in, of hope to do with It happened in the group, now. I must say. People were, I'd, obviously, there's no particular instruction given to you when you start a class like mm. that. And we were only meeting for a couple of hours once a week for three months. So it wasn't very long. But somehow, without discussion, we unilaterally arrived at the way to be kind to each other's work. Because that's the other thing. I've, I've heard about other writing groups that fall out. Although, in a gossipy way, that's great. Because hearing about it is really fun. <laughs> but for my own purposes, I would have really struggled if we had had that happen. And we did all stay 
supportive. And yeah, it's it's been joyful that part of it because um, you know, I, I'm sure a lot of them are well on the way to publication. I'm not saying that in a kind of hey, I'm published, but you know, you can just tell those books need to be on the shelves. And and the lovely thing about joining an industry late as well is how nice it is. <laughs> yes. Yes. These are really nice people in publishing. <laughs> and it obviously moves at a different pace from the thing I'm most used to, which is television, where they kind of want it tomorrow and then it's already gone. Um, <laughs> publishing is a lot slower. Now, when I when I first got a publishing deal and I met with with um, my lovely publishers uh, in um, April two years ago, and they went, "Yeah, we're going to publish a book next February." Next, fe- what? That's, that's like that's longer than childbirth or anything. That's just whoa. That's ages. But of course, always, something is always happening in that time. It, it's actually they're not just you know sitting there thinking, "We'll wait for this." You know, there's there's a real creative force mm. that becomes very involving, and it's yeah, it's lovely, lucky. Well, really well nice. listen, that was so, uh, that was fascinating and really <laughs> inspiring advice from both of you about anybody who wants to write. But thank you very much indeed for well, both talking you. so wonderfully about these terrific novels. Please vote <laughs> and please come and meet uh, Lorna and Janet next door in the bookshop where they're going to be signing copies of their novels. Uh, but let's just finish by giving them a huge round of applause. Thank you both. <laughs> thank you. More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest.